Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Amen. All right, so I promise tonight is the last night we're going to talk about sin because we've been talking about sin all for like three or four weeks now. And I'm trying to go along with what the kids are learning, but they're, they've got 10 minute, 10 to 15 minute lessons. I've got an hour to an hour and 15 I've got to stretch out. So it's a little bit hard to keep up with them. But um, one of the joys, it's kind of a bittersweet joy I have as a pastor. Um, I, I probably need to go back and do this. I, I haven't counted. But in the 17 years that I've been here, I've done a lot of funerals, a lot of memorial services. And it is somewhat of a joy to do a memorial service or a funeral for a person you, when you know they're going to be in heaven. Um, when you can minister to the family and the family tells you about their life, about their salvation, and you know for certain that that person is in heaven. The saddest thing for me as a pastor is when I do a funeral or a memorial service and you don't really know. Um, but I want you to think about death there's something like we don't often think about death. I know when we go to funerals and memorial services, we think about death. But when you think about death, it's, um, it's final. It's, there's no more life. There is death. There's separation. Um, it, it's basically just the end of the earthly life. Now, why do I bring up death tonight? What is spiritual death. What we're going to talk about tonight is the sinfulness of sin. It can also be called total depravity. But as we begin tonight, I want to go back a little bit into history because there's been a debate going all the way back to the 400s about these questions. Okay, so let's just kind of retrace our steps. We, we started in Genesis 1 with creation. We talked about God being sovereign over all things. We talked about God creating man in his own image. We talked about marriage. And then we spent a few weeks on the fall, what Adam and Eve actually did when they sinned. And then we talked about the aftermath of the fall. Last week we looked at Cain and Abel, and we talked about how sin just kind of started out in the first family, and it was rebellion against God. And so we've been talking about sin. And again, I promise this is the last week we're going to do it because it can kind of be depressing. Um, but the question that people and scholars and pastors and theologians and, and throughout church history, the question is this, just how sinful are humans? Like how sinful? The question is not are we sinful, the question is to what degree? What effect did Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden truly have on humanity? Now here's an even deeper question that we can maybe get into tonight with some discussions. Do we have libertarian free will to choose positively for Christ, or is our will in bondage to sin? Now, I want to give you a false view, 
And the false view, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but I want to talk about it again because it's alive and well in our world. It's called Pelagianism. And it's named after a British monk whose name was Pelagius. That's why it's called Pelagianism. Okay? So he denied, Pelagius, he denied the teaching of original sin inherited from Adam. He called it blasphemous. He said the fact that we would inherit sin from Adam is actually blasphemous. And I'll give you a quote. He said this, A sin propagated by generation is totally contrary to the Catholic faith. Sin is not born with man, but is committed afterward by man. It is not the fault of nature, but of free will. What Pelagius is saying is that humans are born neutral. We're born a blank slate. You can choose to sin or you can choose not to sin, but there's nothing that Adam did that actually impacts us today. So we are blank slates. We are morally neutral. There's no inherited sin. There's no original sin. What Adam did in the garden had no effect upon us at all. And he would say this. He says, we are not born in our full development, but with the capacity for good and evil, we are born as well without virtue as well as without vice. So that whole blank slate idea. We're not, we're not born bad, we're not born good, you're born neutral, and then you choose which way you want to go. Now, this doctrine was denounced as heretical at the Council of Carthage in 418 and numerous other church councils. And, and, and you need to understand this too. Even the Roman Catholic Church denounces this as heresy. So Pelagianism, full-blown Pelagianism, is basically the, the whole idea that God helps those who help themselves. There is no inherited sin from Adam. You're basically a blank slate. Okay? That's a heresy that's been denounced throughout church history. But there's a lot of people, if you were to go out and talk to people on the street today and you ask people, do you think humans are basically good or basically evil? What do you think most people would say? Humans are basically good. What's the second question you would ask them? How can you explain all the murder, violence, crime, abuse that you see in the world if humans are basically good? I don't know what answer they would have for that. But the human mind, the human heart always tends towards we're pretty good compared to other people. What the Bible teaches is that humans are spiritually dead. And because we're spiritually dead and enslaved to sin, every part of our being has been affected by the fall. Now, this condition does not mean that we're as sinful as we could be, but it does mean that sin has radically corrupted our mind, our heart, and our will. And as a result, humans are incapable of doing anything good or pleasing to God and cannot in and of themselves, choose positively for Christ. That's basically what the argument of the Bible is, is that we've inherited a sin nature from Adam. It renders us sinful, spiritually dead, incapable of doing anything good, even choosing Christ positively because our will is in bondage. Now, I'm going to teach you guys two words tonight. And so these are words maybe you're familiar with or maybe you're not familiar with. It's monergism versus synergism. Okay, maybe you've heard the word synergism or synergy Okay, you know what the word mono is. 
Mono means one. Ergon is the Greek word to work. So monergism means there's only one person doing the work. Okay. Synergism, S-Y-N, means many or together, or more than one doing the work. It's a cooperative effort. So let me ask you a question. In our salvation, is it monergistic or is it synergistic? Is it a cooperative effort between us and God, or does God alone do it? It's monergistic. God alone does it. We can't make ourselves alive. We can't save ourselves. We can't do any of these things because we're spiritually dead. God has to do it. Now, some groups and some denominations and other fine Christians believe in synergism, that it's a cooperative effort between us and God. So what I want us to do tonight, we're not going to be in one particular passage of Scripture like in Genesis or whatever. We're going to, it's more of a, a topical study tonight because, again, this is a theology. We're kind of going along with what the kids are learning. But what I want to do is I want to talk about four essential truths concerning the sinfulness of humanity. Okay, and I'll list what these four are, and we're going to look at different, give different Scriptures tonight that teach this. So inherited guilt, that's the first one. Universal depravity, that's the second one. Spiritual deadness. And then the last one, which is probably the most controversial, is total inability. So let's first look at inherited guilt. We looked a little bit at this a few weeks ago, but let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And by the way, we're going to be in Romans a lot tonight because in Romans... Paul explains and expounds the depths of the gospel. And in order to do that, he has to talk about sin. And, and Paul will often comment or explain the theological truths behind what happened in the Garden of Eden. So we're looking at the whole issue of inherited guilt. So let's read Paul. And do you guys have a, um, like an uninspired heading above that section in your Bible? Does it say death in Adam, life in Christ? Okay, so two, two humanities. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Those are the only two choices. Okay? You're born in Adam, and the only way you get in Christ is through faith. Those are the only two options. You're either in Adam, you're spiritually dead, you're inherited as guilt, or you're in Christ, you're saved. So let's read Paul's argument here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a lot that could be said about that passage of Scripture. But what I want to do is I want to look at verse 12. Because verse 12 has been one of the most controversial passages in relationship to this whole idea of original sin and original guilt. Now, it's very easy to understand the first two things that Paul teaches in verse 12. <clears throat> Notice what he says. Sin came into the world through one man. Okay, so how did sin enter the world? Through, who's the one man? Adam. Okay, that's pretty easy to understand. Adam's sin, he brought sin into the world. Okay, second thing he teaches, what resulted as when, when Adam brought sin into the world? Death. And death spread to all men. The confusing thing is that last little statement there. Because all sinned. Now let's ask the question here. Who sinned in the garden? Who sinned in the garden? Adam. Adam. Well, Adam and Eve. But let's just say, Paul's, who sinned in the garden of Eden? Adam. Now why does Paul say because all sinned? Who's the all? that sinned when it was just Adam that sinned. There have been three dominant views in church history at how to answer that question of the all. Because you, you have Paul making an argument that it was Adam's sin, and Adam brought death, and death spread, but somehow all men sinned. What's he talking about here? The first view is what we call, <coughs> excuse me, imitation or Pelagianism, as I told you earlier, Pelagius. So, um, basically, Pelagius, or Pelagianism, or imitation, the view says, given a chance, all people will eventually commit actual sins because they simply followed Adam's example in the garden. In other words, you didn't inherit any sin from Adam, you're just imitating or copying what Adam did. You're born a blank slate, you're born neutral, but given enough time with an environment that's inclined towards sin, you will eventually commit an actual sin and you will imitate what Adam did. But there's nothing that Adam did that affected you. Okay. View number two. This is the corruption view. We inherit a sinful nature from Adam which makes us corrupt, and that depraved nature leads us to commit actual sins eventually. Okay, this is the doctrine of original sin. When it says all sin there, it means that because of Adam's sin, all of us are born sinners by nature, and we will commit actual sins. Uh, Paul kind of reiterates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 15, 21 through 22. For as by one man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Okay, so original sin basically says that we all die physically because Adam died, but we also are born spiritually dead because Adam sinned. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, this is David. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this can be confusing. I've had people in Bible studies, I asked what this means, and the first interpretation a lot of people say is, well, in sin did my mother conceive me. They're thinking that David's mom must have been an adulterer, and that David was conceived in a sinful relationship. Okay. Does the Bible say anything about David's mom having an adulterous affair, or he being an illegitimate son? doesn't say that at all in sin did my mother conceive me it's not the mother's act of having an adulterous affair that makes David an illegitimate son what David's arguing is that at the point of conception he was a sinner and when he came out of his mother's womb he was already born with iniquity he was born with the sinful nature he was born corrupted because he David doesn't unpack that, but Paul says it here. It's because it came from Adam. Okay, we can, we can, we can reject the imitation view, because that's Pelagianism. We, we don't believe that we're born a blank slate and we choose to sin or we can choose not to sin. Okay, we can understand corruption, that we're, that we're born with the sin nature because of Adam, <clears throat> and thus we're born sinful. But there's, there's one other view that takes it a step further. This view is called imputation. And what it basically says is this, Adam's condemnation in the garden was imputed or credited to us so that we are born guilty of his sin. Adam was our federal head, and what he did in the garden as our representative not only gave us a sinful nature, but also made us born guilty of his sin, even though we were not yet born nor had committed any sins of our own. Now, what's the first thing you're going to think about with this whole idea that Adam's sin has been accredited to us and we're born with his guilt? What's the first thing that you're going to say? That's not fair. Why am I being held accountable? Why am I being born guilty for somebody else's sins? I should only be guilty for the sins that I commit. How can I be guilty for somebody else's sins? Okay, the Bible teaches something called federal headship or solidarity, where one person represents the whole. So Adam, as the first human being, represents the whole. And his sin becomes our sin. His guilt becomes our guilt. Whether we committed the sin or not, we are born not only sinful nature, we're born with his guilt. Now, what happens when you become a Christian? The righteousness of Christ is credited to you. And you could also say, well, that's not fair. It's not. You didn't earn that righteousness. It was given to you as a gift. And so we need to understand that this inherited guilt means that not only are we depraved, but we are born guilty. Now, before we go any further, do you have any questions on this? kind of controversial. Does anybody have any questions on inherited guilt? Anybody have problems with it, have questions with it, or need more explanation? That we're born guilty. Yes, Ben. Um, what about the young children that die? Yes, that's okay. 
He asked the right question. <laughs> That's the question you should be asking. Okay, his question is, what about babies that die or, or, don't, or don't reach the age? Okay, so let's just, let's unpack this. This is a good question. This is not in your notes, so let's talk about baby. Infant salvation. Are babies born with a sinful nature? Yes. Okay. It's not like they get a sinful nature later. They're born that way. Okay. But let me ask a second question. Do babies understand right from wrong? No. Okay. On the day of judgment, unsaved people will be judged by deeds they did in the body and by their knowledge of sin. That only refers to adults that can understand that or to a child that's at an age. And in talking about the age of accountability, I don't know what that, people talk about the age of accountability as if there's like a specific age. Like I've heard some people say, it's four, it's seven. It's basically this. It could be different for every child. It's that point where a child understands sin, they understand right from wrong, and they know why they're being punished. Okay? So, a child, even though they're born with original sin and original guilt, all aborted babies, all stillborn babies, all miscarriages, and all infants who die before they reach that age where they can understand sin and know right from wrong, they go to heaven based upon the graciousness of Christ. Does that answer your, your question? Now, a four- or five-year-old kid, that's a different story. Do they, yeah, yes? Yes. Yeah, that's basically what I say. Yeah. They recognize they have a need. So what that would look like, I know right from wrong, I know I'm a sinner, I know I need Jesus. And so whatever that time period is, there becomes a point where you are held accountable for the sins that you, com that you commit. Um, does that answer your question, Ben, or is that, do I need to give a little bit more explanation to it? Yeah. The main point is this. There's two truths, okay? All, every single person is born. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was conceived in iniquity. Every baby is born spiritually inheriting the sin from Adam. But yet, you are only judged and go to hell for the sins that you committed in the body that, that you can be held accountable for. So therefore, those babies are in a special category, those infants, where they end up going to heaven because they have not reached a point where they know, as the Bible and the Old Testament say, they don't know the right hand from their left hand. You go back and you read the Old Testament, oftentimes it talked about the children, they didn't know the right hand from their left hand. That's a way of saying they didn't know right from wrong. They, they weren't old enough to understand sin. And here's what, this is what one Presbyterian, not a Baptist, one Presbyterian, um, I think it's Dabney, he wrote a book on infant salvation. He made it, I don't know if I necessarily agree with him, but he made an interesting statement. He, he said this, if a child that did not understand punishment or right or wrong went to hell, they would be suffering there and not knowing why they're there. Because they don't have no, they have no concept that they did anything wrong. And so why would they be suffering in hell for something that they can't even conceive of, it, of, of why they're there? 
Now, that's kind of a more of a philosophical argument, but I understand what he's saying. He's basically saying that there has to come a point where an infant or a child understands their need, right from wrong, sin, a need for a Savior, and they can um, understand those things. Does, does that make sense? Any other questions before we move forward? Like I said, Jerry, there, there's not a fixed age. There's not like, it's not like seven or four. I think in my, excuse me, in my years of pastoral ministry, um, I have sat down here at Emmanuel. There's maybe been two children in Emmanuel that were pretty young, like seven or eight, that understood like what I would believe to be a credible profession of faith where they understood. Um, there's been other times where, you know, maybe they didn't know as much. So I don't have an exact age. I think it's only God knows that. But when you pun- let me just ask it this way: How do you punish a uh, How do you punish a one year old? Do they really know what they're doing? You still, like if they're going to stick their hand on, the, on, on an oven, what do you do? You grab their hand, you take it back. Do they have any concept that that oven's going to be hot? No, okay. Or if they, like, grab the toy and start crying, do you, like, you're going to be grounded for three weeks. Do they understand, like, does a one-year-old understand that? So there, there's got to be an understanding there of right from wrong, okay? All right, you guys ready to move forward with the second one? So the first, the first issue is inherited guilt. We've not only inherited a corrupt nature from Adam, We've also inherited his guilt. Even though we were not there that committed the act of sin, his sin as our representative becomes our sin and we're held guilty for it. With the exception of of infants. All right. Now, we move to universal depravity. So go back in your Bible, two two chapters to Romans chapter 3. Let me give you Paul's outline in Romans. Okay, Romans chapter 1. Gentiles are sinners. Romans chapter 2. Jews, if you think the Gentiles are sinners, you're worse because you have the Old Testament and you have the law and you have the Scriptures and you're not living up to it. So you're toast. Chapter 3. Oh, by the way, if I hadn't told you before, Jews and Gentiles both are sinners. And if I haven't told you enough, let's get to verse 9. This is what Paul says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I want you to notice prepositions in the Bible are very important. Look at verse 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, so we're talking about universal here, every single person, are under sin. Under sin. That's an important little preposition. What does it mean to be under sin? What's the image here? Like you're, you're under the weight of sin. Let me give you three Ps. 
that the rest of the book of Romans teaches. We're under sin's penalty, meaning that we're born guilty and we deserve hell. We're under sin's penalty. Number two, we're under sin's power. We're born enslaved to that sin nature and we cannot escape the power of sin. And we're born under sin's pollution. We're born corrupted and stained by sin. So what Paul is saying is fundamentally every part of a person, their mind, their will, emotions, is under the power, the penalty, and the pollution of sin. We're under sin as this controlling thing in our lives. So in this passage of Scripture, Paul gives some graphic depictions or descriptions of universal depravity. And at first you're reading this, you're thinking like, man, Paul, you're going overboard. You're kind of like laying it on thick. We get the point. But let's see what Paul says here. So verse 10, as it is written, now as it is written, what's he referring to? When a New Testament writer says, as it is written, what's he usually referring to? The Old Testament. So Paul is laying down a bunch of Old Testament texts to, to prove his point, saying this is nothing new. This is something the Old Testament teaches. Okay, so he says, no one is righteous. Okay, no one is righteous. This is directly from Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. So that's where Paul says, as it is written. So he's quoting Psalm 14. He's also quoting Psalm 53. 1 and 2 basically says the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Now, what does it mean that you are not righteous? You can look at it two ways. Number one, you don't have any inherent righteousness to bring to the table in that you do sinful deeds and you're not righteous in your character or in your attitude or in your actions. But really what it's more saying is that positionally, you are not righteous before God. You are guilty in a position. You're under sin. You are unrighteous. And so Paul's going to answer that as you, if we were to study the rest of the book of Romans. Paul's going to say your greatest need is to have a righteousness outside of yourself that comes from God as a free gift. But you are not righteous. That's the first thing he says. Then he says no one, this is an interesting one, no one understands. No one understands what? Let me ask you a question. Can an unsaved person understand the facts of the gospel? Yes. If I were to talk to somebody on the street and I were to tell them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, could they track with what I'm saying just on a basic level of the the information? Can they understand the information? Yes. But can they understand the spiritual nature of their sin and their need to have a Savior? No. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says this, the natural person, and, and what he means by the natural person is the unsaved person, the person 
flesh, the natural person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. They're foolish to him. He is not able. I want you to, I want you to look at those words. He is not able to what? Understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. An unsaved person is not able to understand spiritual truths unless the Holy Spirit does a work to make those truths come alive in their heart. It doesn't mean that they can't understand the facts or the information or when you present the gospel to them, they can nod their head and say, I understand, I understand. But fundamentally, what has to happen in their heart? They are not able to fully understand their need for Savior, um, their need for Christ, to come to Christ, unless the Spirit does a work to overcome that inability. Because they're darkened in their heart. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18? Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Listen to the descriptions Paul gives of unsaved people. Futility of mind, darkened in understanding, alienated from God, ignorance due to a hardness of heart. So you can explain things to an unsaved person, but they're not going to understand them spiritually because they have a hardness of heart. They have blinders on their eyes. They're darkened. So what do they need? What do we desperately need? What, what do unsaved people need? The Holy Spirit. To do this deep work in hearts and minds to give this spiritual understanding of the gospel. If no one understands, the only person that's going to give them understanding is the Holy Spirit to overcome that darkened heart. Right? No one seeks for God. Um, it was big in the 80s and 90s. Did you ever guys ever hear the seeker-targeted or the seeker-sensitive movement? When I was a youth pastor in 1999, I think, I went to a conference in Denver. It was put on by Willow Creek Church, which was a big megachurch back in the day. It was called the can't remember what the name of it was, but the whole thing about it was, and I, it, was new, it was new terminology to me. I never heard it before, but all the people were saying, like, we're trying to reach seekers. Like, are you reaching seekers? Who, who, what seekers are coming to your church? Seekers, seekers. Everything was seekers. Like, we're, we're doing everything for seekers. What seekers are you coming to your youth group? Okay, no one seeks God. Now, let's ask a question, because maybe you've learned this terminology before. Do people seek God? We have to say, well, no, because Paul says no one seeks God. So, but what do you do with a person that's unsaved that says, you know what, I'm just kind of seeking things. I'm, I'm, I'm searching. I'm searching for answers. I'm seeking things out. I'm looking for truth. Let's look at a psalm here for a moment. Psalm 42, 1 through 4. You guys are probably familiar with the psalm of David. As... The deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude 
heaping festival. Now, these are, these are terms we don't often use of, Christ, uh, of our Christian walk, do we? When's, uh, I've said this before. When's the last time you went to somebody and said, man, I really panted after God today? During that worship service, I was panting for God, like a deer pants for streams of water. Or, I'm thirsting for God. I'm longing for God. My tears have been my food. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm glorifying God. Here's the question. Can these descriptions be said of non-believers? Can a non-believer truly thirst and hunger and pant after the living God? No. To seek God in the biblical sense of it means as a believer, you are desiring more of God after you're already saved. And again, let me ask the question. Objection, Paul. Objection, Pastor Sean. What about people who are religious or spiritual or even pray? Are they not seeking God in some way? And here's my answer to that. Yes, in a way. Let's ask it this way. Can a sinner seek the benefits of God and not seek God himself for all he is? Can a person say, you know, I'm kind of seeking answers, I'm searching. But what I really want is I want God to get me out of debt. I want God to bring me my new husband. I want God to give me my financial miracle. I want God to give me, you know, get me out of my sickness. They wouldn't say, I want God because I need Jesus. It's more they want the benefits of what God can give them. So yes, there are people that quote-unquote seem to appear to be religious and seeking God, but in the fundamental sense, the only way you're ever going to seek God is if God does a work in your heart to bring you to that point. Because the Bible teaches this in Colossians 1, 21-22. You who were once, once, okay, past tense, you were once, non-Christian, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's now reconciled you in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What was our condition or our attitude towards God before we were saved? What what words are, are used there? What does it mean to be alienated? Separated, estranged. What does hostile mean? You're you're angry, you're at war with God. And you were doing evil deeds. And then Titus 3:3 For we ourselves were once, again, past tense, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating by others and hating one another. Now, it's important to remember that Paul uses past tense verbs here. This is what we once were. We're If we're a Christian, we're not that anymore. But he's, he's showing a contrast between our life before Christ and our life now. Okay, back to Romans. All have turned aside. Where have we heard this language? Isaiah 53, 5-6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. I often say sin is going your own way. 
I don't want to go God's way. I'm going to turn my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. And then notice what Paul says next. All, and notice how he keeps saying all. <laughs> okay, thanks Paul, all. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. It's interesting, in the original language, that word worthless means how milk goes sour. Isn't that the grossest thing you've ever had? Anybody ever had sour milk? <laughs> you go in there and you pour it. Well, usually you pour it and it comes out, but like if you're one of those people that drinks it out of the jug, I don't do that, but it's not, not allowed in our family. You've got to pour it into a glass. You don't just drink out of the jug because there's multiple people. But uh, if you're one of those jug drinkers, sour milk comes out, it's like really bad. So, And then Paul says, no one does good. Now, wait a minute, Paul. Does this mean that nobody does any good? What about all those people that are like the Red Cross that are helping down in Florida with the hurricanes? Are they not doing good? What about civic organizations like the Elks Club or the Lions Club that do good? Don't, don't people do good? There's a difference between what we would call a civic or societal good and a gospel good. Meaning this. Can a sinner do a good work but with impure motives and not for the glory of God? Yeah. Paul here is not saying that nobody does anything good. What he's saying is nobody does good in the sense that you cannot do anything spiritual enough to earn God's grace. You can do a good work, but it's not going to earn you anything. And it's not going to be acceptable before God. It's not going to be before, before, for God's glory. And Isaiah says it this way. In Isaiah 64, 6, we all, there's the all language, we all have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even the good things that we do are not acceptable for God. Because we can never do enough good with good enough motives all the time, pure. Do you know what God requires? Perpetual, personal, and perfect obedience. Anybody here do that? Perpetual and perfect obedience means you have to be perfect all the time, 100% of the time. If you could do that, your, your righteous deeds would not be like a polluted garment. But you and I cannot do enough righteous deeds all the time, 100% perfection, it's like a polluted garment. So Paul here is making the charge. Everyone, without exception, is born guilty, powerless, enslaved, and under sin as a condition. It's universal. That's why he has the words like no one, no one, no one, all. Now I've heard some people that I interact with and they may be watching tonight on live stream, through debates and other avenues that say Paul was using exaggeration here to get a point across. That he didn't really mean all in the sense that it was more like it was an exaggeration. Let me just ask you a question. At face value, does it seem like Paul is exaggerating? Or is Paul, he's basically quoting the Old Testament. Paul's point is to say, 
Every single person, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, and it's based upon the argument he's made in chapter 1, 2, and then to this point in chapter 3, that all people, without exception, are under sin as a condition. We're born that way, and because we're born that way, we commit actual sins out of that nature. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart's desperately sick. And notice what Jesus says in John 3, 19 through 20. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is saying unsaved people love darkness. Let me ask you, what little critter loves to hang out in darkness, loves to eat off bacteria, loves to cause problems, but when the light shines, they, they, they go for the hills? La cucaracha, la cucaracha, a cockroach, okay? Cockroaches love to hang out in dark places where they can eat off bacteria, and then when you turn the light on, what does a cockroach do? They scatter because they don't like the light. That's kind of a weird image. But unsaved people are like cockroaches in a sense that they would rather be in the dark feeding on the things that are spiritually sick because they love it so much, but when the light of the gospel or when Jesus shines upon them, they'd rather like hide because they don't want to be exposed. Why? Because they love the darkness. They'd rather hang out in the darkness. Now here's the thing. If you poll people on the street, like I said earlier, and you ask them these questions, most people are going to say that they're inherently good. Most people don't wake up let me, let me put it this way. Most people don't wake up saying, I should be in hell today because of my sin. Do most people wake up thinking that? Most people wake up thinking, hey, I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as a guy down the street. Maybe I'll do some good today. Most people don't think they're as bad as they are, especially when they compare themselves to others. Now, let me give you two analogies from nature to talk about the sin nature and the nature that we're born with that we can't rise above, and that's inherent in us, okay? So this is the first analogy is from Jeremiah, and he gives two analogies. Jeremiah, it's a comparison contrast, okay? Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Okay, let's ask the question. These are rhetorical questions, but let's ask the first one. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? What's the answer? No. Why can't an Ethiopian wake up and want to change the color of his skin unless he's Michael Jackson? Okay, what, well, how, can the, how can the Ethiopian, why can't the Ethiopian change his skin? What's the answer? Because he's what? Born with that skin. It's inherent to who he is. He can't just change fundamentally what he is. Okay? Can a leopard change his spots? Can a leopard wake up one day and say, I don't want to have spots, I want to have stripes like a tiger? Why can't a leopard change his spots? Because a leopard is born that way. It's fundamental to his nature. Okay, then what's the, what's, the, what's the third comparison here? Okay, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? And what's the answer? No. 
Why? What's been the train of thought so, long, so far? Because you are born that way. It's part of your nature. You can't rise. You cannot, no matter how hard you try, rise above your nature to do something good. You can try, and you can maybe have some good habits here and there, but fundamentally, you can't change your sin nature, no matter how hard you try, because you're born that way. Okay, let's go to another analogy from nature. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, 17-18, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Okay, trees bearing fruit. What's Jesus' argument? Basically, he's saying this. Fundamentally, a diseased tree cannot produce anything positive or rise above its essential nature, nature of corruption. If you're a diseased tree, can you produce anything good? What is Jesus saying there? No. Why? What's a diseased tree? Okay, we had, we had to get rid of a diseased tree out here, didn't we? Did you guys see? Okay, I was, there's a tree that was out there on the horseshoe, or not the horseshoe, whatever, that dog bone thing is where we par- the guest parking is. And it had these weird things on it. I thought it was sap. It was like big old weird goobery looking things. And I guess they were called ulcers, from what Kim told me. There were ulcers on this tree. The tree was rotting, and the tree had to be cut down. So here's the question. If it's a diseased tree, what do you do with the diseased tree? There's nothing you can do with the diseased tree. From its inside out, it is diseased. Is it ever going to produce any fruit? What What does the tree have to do? The tree has to go from being diseased to good. Can you, make it, can, you, can you change a tree from being diseased to good? Can a tree go from being a bad tree to being a good tree? In nature, you can't do that. Okay, but spiritually, what the analogy is this. We are born like a diseased tree, spiritually. And how do we change? Can, can, you, can you will yourself to change? Can you hope you change? The only way you are going to change is if the Holy Spirit changes you from the inside out and makes you a new creation. The only way you go from being spiritually diseased to spiritually alive is if the Holy Spirit does that work to change your nature. So, in the same way, those who are spiritually diseased through the corruption of sin cannot produce anything positive that will result in the good fruit of repentance and faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Okay, so I told you we're looking at four descriptions that the Bible gives of depravity. One, we talked about inherited guilt. Two, we talked about universal depravity. Here, the third one, we're going to talk about spiritual deadness. Okay, so turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're hanging out in Paul. We're going to come back to Romans here in a minute, but if I was smart, I would have had all this in Romans and then gone to Ephesians, but Oh, well, you guys can flip pages. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You guys ready? Everybody there? While you're getting there, let me get a drink of water. Ephesians 2. 
and you were, uh, important to remember there, Paul's talking about our condition before we were saved, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul provides a five-fold description of our condition, our position, and what it means to be in bondage to sin before we were saved. So let's look at these five. First of all, at one time we were all dead in trespasses and sins. You guys remember the movie The Sixth Sense? Bruce Willis? Psychiatrist, little kid. I see dead people. Well, the eight-year-old boy sees dead people, but they look alive. What are they doing? They're walking around. They're doing life. Everything. I'm not going to give away the, the movie if you haven't seen it, but Paul's not saying here that as a spiritually dead person, you're inactive or you're not doing anything or you're passive. As a matter of fact, he's saying that you're spiritually dead in transgress transgressions that you're walking in. And the word transgressions means rebellion. We weren't just passive bystanders walking in neutrality towards God. Again, that's Pelagianism, neutrality. When the Bible says we were walking in this deadness, it really means the totality of our lives. In other words, what Paul is saying is, as one who's spiritually dead, your lifestyle was one of walking in continual rebellion against God, and thus you were spiritually dead. That's the first description, spiritually dead. Second in there, Paul says you followed the course of this world. Following the course of this world. The course What's the course? Like you go to a golf course. You follow, you follow the stream. You follow the course. Think about it this way. Wherever the world takes you, you're following it. You're just kind of going down the stream. Wherever the world leads, you're following it. The world is squeezing you into its mold. You're in bondage to this present evil age. You're in love with this world system. So not only are you spiritually dead walking in rebellion talking about an unbeliever, not only is an unbeliever just in love with the world and can't say no to the world, the third thing is this. We once followed Satan as children of disobedience. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's talking about Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We're following Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says in their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world, again, that's a different name for Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So it's bad enough that you were once spiritually dead. It's bad enough that you were just kind of following the world and letting the world take you down its course. But number three, you were, you were following Satan. Whether you knew it or not, you were under his sway. And then fourth, we once lived in the passions of our flesh. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, you couldn't say no to you couldn't say no to sin and yes to Christ because you were enslaved to your passions. I think we looked at this earlier. That Titus three three we are we were once foolish, disobedience led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Slaves to passions and pleasures. So I, I want to give you the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world will come against you. Your flesh will come against you. And Satan will come against you. As a Christian. Now, as a non-Christian, those three things are part of who you are. The unholy trinity is part of who you are. You're following the world, you're following your flesh, and you're following the devil. Why? Because you're spiritually dead. And then the fifth thing, we were formerly by nature children of God's wrath. Now I want you to notice the carefulness in which Paul addresses this. We were by nature children of wrath. Now let me ask you a question. Paul doesn't say we were merely children of wrath. In other words, let me ask it this way. Could a Pelagian who believes that you're born neutral, could a Pelagian say you deserve God's wrath because you chose to sin? Yes. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says you didn't, you didn't choose to sin and therefore become under God's wrath. He says you're what? By nature. It's your nature. The only other time Paul uses that term nature is in Galatians 2.15 where he says we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles. So it could be translated we were from birth children of wrath and then there's that universalism or not universalism, universal um, application like who? The rest of all mankind. Okay? Inherited guilt, Romans chapter 5. Universal depravity, Romans chapter 3. Spiritual deadness, Ephesians chapter 2. But now we get to a controversial one. And this is what kind of separates Emmanuel maybe from some other churches, or at least my theology from some other theologies. And that is, we take it a step further than just total depravity. Many will argue that just because we are born sinful, we still retain the ability to use our libertarian free will to come to Christ. They would say, yes, we're born sinful, but that in no way impacts your will. You still have free will. You can come to Christ. You can choose Christ. You can accept Christ. You have the ability to do so. And I would say, you do not have the ability to do so unless God does something to overcome that inability. So what is total inability? Most Christians will affirm total depravity. We're corrupt, we're born sinners, we have a sin nature, we deserve God's wrath, but they won't take it a step further and say, because of all that, it renders you unable to come to faith in Christ and use your free will to do so. God has to do a work in you. So, I want us to turn to the Gospel of John, 
So as you're turning to John chapter 6, I said we go back to Romans, but I forgot we're going to John. Um, John chapter 6. So this is a really long chapter in John's gospel where Jesus is feeding the 5,000. So he feeds the 5,000. And they are excited that they get a happy meal. And they're following Jesus around, wanting more food. And um, this passage does teach the doctrine of election. I can go ahead and introduce that tonight. But I want to really talk about total inability. But let's go to, um, let's just go to verse 44, John 6, 44. I'll keep you hanging on the, the, the election part when we get there. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can. I think I asked this question the other day in our new members class. Does that mean permission or ability? No one has permission to come to me. Is that what Jesus is saying? No one can. The actual word there for can, I'll translate literally. No one, it's the word dynamis, which is the Greek word for power. No one has power to come to me. Unless, what has to happen? Why can't you come? Let's just ask the question. Why can't you come to Jesus in faith? Why can no one come? Because of everything we just looked at. No one seeks. No one understands. You're spiritually dead. You're a child of wrath. You follow the course of this world. You're in Adam. No one can come. But there's an unless there. What has to happen? The Father has to draw you. And once the Father draws you, well, if you go back up earlier in that passage of Scripture, you will come. Okay, go down to verse 65. Jesus reiterates it again, but he changes a little bit of the language. Okay, look at verse 44 and look at verse 45. I mean, verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you, back up in verse 44, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now notice this changed the wording there a little bit. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So there's a drawing. In verse 65, the Father has to grant it. The Father has to enable. The Father has to grace it. The Father has to give you the ability to come. So you cannot come to Jesus. You cannot wake up one day and say, I want to trust in Jesus. Now, you may have experientially trusted in Jesus. But the reason you experientially trusted in Jesus is because God either drew you or God graced you or God gave you the ability to do that. God overcame that deadness. God overcame that resistance. God overcame that depravity. And he did the work to bring you to Christ. But in and of yourself, you could not come. Because your will is not necessarily free, but it's in bondage. Now, this is not in your notes, and I probably should have included it, but let's just talk. Are you guys okay if we stop and talk about free will for just a minute? You can choose not to believe if you have a choice. If you choose not to believe, you still have made a choice. I will choose free will. That's a song by Rush. Anyway, um, free will. Is the human will 
free. And let me answer it this way. You will always choose based upon your nature. So, if you are not saved and you are spiritually dead and you're not seeking God and you do not understand and you're a child of wrath and you're following the course of this world and you're spiritually dead and that's your nature, will you ever choose positively for Christ? Okay. You will make choices all day long. You'll choose chocolate chip cookies or you'll choose Oreos. You'll choose blue socks or you'll choose red socks. You'll choose to go to the Broncos game or you'll choose to stay home and watch it on TV. Those are natural choices that we make. And you make those based upon your nature. I want to do these things. I choose these because I want to. When it comes to spiritually choosing for Jesus, you don't have the ability to do that because you don't want to. You don't want to and you cannot. Because Jesus says no one can come to me unless, there's that key unless, the Father has to do the work. So in his famous book, The Bondage of the Will, Martin Luther wrote this, Free will or the human heart is so bound by the power of Satan that it must be wondrously quickened by the Spirit of God. So great is the misery and blindness of mankind. Total inability means that not only your mind and your heart, but your will, your ability to choose, is also in bondage, and you cannot choose unless God frees you from that bondage. Now, no one can come. No one is able to come. Now let's turn to Roman, back to Romans chapter 8. I may go the whole time tonight, guys, or at least I better, I better hurry here. Romans 8, 5 through 8. Okay, Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for indeed it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, talks about two types of people here. Those who are in the flesh, those who are in the Spirit. How does a person go from being in the flesh to being in the Spirit? Well, verse 2 tells us, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The Holy Spirit has set you free from your bondage. So when you become a Christian, you are set free from that bondage. But when you're not a Christian, if you're living in the flesh, if you're unregenerate, Paul gives four descriptions here of total, in, total inability here from Romans 5. I mean Romans 8, chapter, Romans 8 5 through 8. So first, the depraved mind is set on death. 
And Paul uses the present tense verb to show that uh, the unregenerate person right now is spiritually dead. Their mind is set on death. They're they're not only spiritually dead now, but they're going to be spiritually dead in the future unless they become, become a Christian or have faith in Christ. So their mind is dead. They're spiritually dead. Again, that's what Paul said in Ephesians. Number two, those in the flesh are hostile to God. Because of original sin and spiritual deadness, the unregenerate sinner hates God and stands condemned as his enemy. The mind is hostile. We looked at that passage of Scripture earlier in Colossians. We won't look at it again, but it uses that word hostile. I'm kind of going fast here towards the end so we can finish up. Um, Number three. Those in the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Cannot. Now there's a cannot again. The verb tense and the construction is the very same that we just saw in John 6, 44, which means that sinners do not have the inherent power or capacity to obey God. God's law. Now that doesn't, that doesn't, mean that, that doesn't just only mean we can't obey the Ten Commandments, but that means any, any, any command that God gives us we can't obey. And let me ask you a question. Is repenting and believing part of God's law? Repenting and believing. Are those things that we're called to do? Yes. You must repent and believe. Mark 1.15. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's a command. Repent and believe. You must do it. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So you and I cannot obey what God's calling us to do. We can't repent, we can't obey, we can't believe, we can't do any of this stuff because our mind is hostile to God and we're spiritually dead. And Paul takes it one step further in verse, the fourth thing he says is, the unregenerate cannot please God. And that phrase, please God, means to win favor, satisfaction, or be worthy. What pleases God? Obedience to His law. What else is pleasing to God? What does God both command and will? Repentance and faith. Okay. So how do we respond to these truths? So let's just review real quick. What are the four main truths that the Bible teaches about the sinfulness of sin? We inherited original guilt from Adam. We were corrupt to the core of our beings, universal depravity. We were spiritually dead, and we were totally unable to do anything positive in coming to Christ. Okay, I know this is very depressing. It's like, why is he spending so much time on sin? I told you, this is the last night we're going to spend on it. We're going to move on. I think it's important as a believer to remember what you've been saved out of. This devastating reality should drive us to our knees in thankful humility and joy that God saved us by grace alone. If it were not for God's grace, you would still be spiritually dead, guilty, condemned, a child of wrath, hostile to God, His enemy, and separated from Him. If God hadn't done this work in you. So if anything, it should drive us to humility thankfulness 
we should thank God every day that he saved us out of our depravity. When he didn't have to. It was sheer grace. But also, the truth of total depravity should break our hearts when we think about our unsaved friends and families who are still in that condition. Just because you've been saved out of it doesn't mean that your friends and family have been. And it's a stark reminder that they're still prisoners of war. They're still in the clutches of Satan. They need the miracle of grace the way you did. And it should break your heart that they're in that condition and you should pray for them and you should encourage them and you should share the gospel with them and you should really understand the gravity of their situation. Do you pray for God to open their blind eyes? Do you pray for God to open their hearts? Do you you pray for God to do a work of grace in them? Do you pray like Charles Spurgeon? This is what Charles Spurgeon said. And we have this on our wall. I don't know if you know that. There's a little poster on our wall on the way out. You can see part of this statement. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. What's Spurgeon saying? We can't control people's response. We can't control what people are going to do. But what we can do is we can love them, we can urge them, we can pray for them, we can warn them, we can share the gospel with them, we can tell them there's hope, we can give them the good news of the gospel so that they can be rescued from their guilt and their depravity. So, nobody's beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody's so sinful they can't be saved. Jesus' arms stand ready to receive anybody that would come to him in repentance and faith. So let's stop there for tonight and see if you guys have any questions or other clarifying things I need to clarify or comment about. Again, this is the last night we're talking about sin. I know it's been like a heavy. We're going to get to something. We're going to get to like better things. <laughs> but let me ask you this question if you don't have a question. And this, maybe this, maybe you'll hurt my feelings if, you answer, if I ask this. Why would I spend an hour and a half tonight talking about sin? Why, why is it important? Why do, why do we need to understand sin? Or let me ask it a different way. Okay, we need to understand sin before we know we have a need. And let me just put it this way. The gospel is so much sweeter when you know what God has saved you out of. When you understand sin and the depths of sin, then you understand salvation so much more beautifully. If you don't really understand what God saved you out of, you're really not going to enjoy salvation as much knowing that this is what you were and this is who you are now. So we really need to do, we can't understand the good news of the gospel until we understand the bad news of our sin. And sometimes we're so quick to go to the good news that some people don't even know why they need the good news 
because they haven't been told the bad news. It's like I came to, um, let's see, who's the youngest person here? Ben or Monica. I came to one of you young people and said, hey, I got the cure for cancer. I got the cure for cancer. I got a little jar out in my car, and I've got the vial, and I'll inject you with the cure for cancer, and it would be awesome. And Ben's like, that's great, but I don't have cancer. Well, it's not very good news to him because it's not a big deal. Now, if I came to Dodie or I came to Gary and I, you guys were struggling with cancer and you're on your deathbed, I came and said, I have a cure to cancer. And I gave you that. You would be so excited because you understood, I definitely have a need. A lot of people are like that with the gospel. Why do I need the gospel? I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't have sin. I don't have problems. Why are you giving me this good news of the gospel? I'm, I'm good already. No, you need to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. 